and welcome to A Bookshelf Binge. I'm your host, Jessica, and today we're joined by Maria Gomez. Maria is an executive editor for Montlake, which is an imprint of Amazon Publishing. She works with bestselling authors, including J.S. Scott, Catherine Bybee, Susan Stoker, and so many more. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Jessica. It's such a pleasure to like get to be on your podcast. This is so exciting. Talking to an editor has been one of my biggest goals in like the year this podcast has been a lip, like alive. <laughs> that's, that's really, really flattering, but it's also like, we can make that happen anytime, Jessica. Just give me a call. Perfect. Can't wait for round two, Maria. <laughs> make this a weekly, a weekly thing. Perfect. Welcome as guest host. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> I love that. Okay, but how did you start being an editor? Like, what's your origin story? Okay, um, I actually love talking about this because uh, I tell my authors all the time and I think it's really great for people to hear that you don't have to be in the know or really like have connections to get into publishing because I had none of that, (laughs) none of that. Um, I grew up an only child. I was a bookworm all my life, was never into sports, was never, you know, just complete, just libraries and bookstores. I got my first job at a bookstore when I was 17. And then I went and opened up the store, the Borders store, the first border store in Puerto Rico, when I was just getting into college. And I worked in Borders all through college. And I graduated with uh, a degree in psychology. I actually started out in English Lit, and uh, everybody was like, what are you going to do with that? <laughs> a lot, apparently, a lot. Uh, but I didn't know it at the time. Um, so I graduated with, psych- uh, with a degree in psychology, and then I was like, oh, now what? I don't, like, nobody really knew what to do. I knew I didn't want to be an author. I knew that for a fact. I just, I didn't really enjoy writing. I just wanted to read, and I loved giving feedback. In all of my writing classes, my favorite part was just giving feedback to everybody else. So uh, what I did was I applied to some master's programs in psychology, and then I just started, you know, applying to some entry-level positions in New York publishing. And I just sort of like threw it all in the air and was like, you know, I'm either going into a master's in psychology or I'll end up in publishing. It's just, I'll just let fate decide. So like two weeks after that, I got a call from HarperCollins Publishers um, asking me to come up and interview for a position that was going to be entry-level. It was... um, editorial assistant for HarperCollins Children's Books and Raya, which was their bilingual children's book imprint. So I was like, yes, yes, I'll be there. <laughs> Absolutely, 100%. Um, so I went, uh, I went with my mom. Uh, we went and we, you know, we hung out in New York and I was like, oh, this is just my first, you know, post-college interview, like nothing's going to come of it. I went on the interview and a few hours later we were at lunch and they were like, we want you to come. We want you to to start. How soon can you start? And I was like, well, <laughs> well, soon in a few weeks. Um, and it, that's how I started in, in publishing. So I was uh, an assistant, an editorial assistant for a few years, moved over to associate editor, and then editor, um, ended up running the Rio bilingual imprint over there and moving over to Harper Teen. And that was really exciting because uh, at Harper Teen, I got to read a lot of romance, which is my favorite thing. Uh, and in 2011 is when I moved over, transitioned over to Amazon Publishing. 
And funny enough, uh, when I first moved over to Amazon Publishing, it was so brand new. There were barely any imprints. <laughs> nobody, nobody knew exactly what was going on. I mean, people that were new to us. So I signed on not knowing exactly what imprint I was going to work for, who I was going to work for, what kind of books I was going to work for. But I just, you know, I was like, you know, this is this sounds exciting. Let's try it. Um, and I ended up starting at Crossing, which is our foreign language imprint. And I was going to international conferences and buying lots of books to be translated into the English language market, which was really fun and exciting. But in 2013, I got a chance to move over to Montlake. And being as that romance is my nearest and dearest to my heart genre, it just made a lot of sense. And I've been at Montlake since 2013. That's awesome. I love that progression. Yeah. As someone whose entire career is just like, let's see what happens next. Like, I feel the story on like such like a heart deep soul level. <laughs> it's, it's been wonderful. But now that I'm here and I'm like in my dream job, I'm like, well, I don't really have a what happens next because I kind of want to stay here forever. So let's just roll with it as long as we can. I love that so much. <laughs> what does being an editor really mean? Like, I feel like it's tossed around a lot. Sometimes like... <laughs> Uh, some bookstagram joke about authors needing like a new editor or needing other editors and like it's such like a broad term so like what does what does this mean that is a really good question and obviously (laughs) being an editor means a lot of different things and different publishing houses have different you know things that they require I will say that at Amazon Publishing I am mainly the acquisition editor so which means that I buy the book and take them from soup to nuts, which means everything from developmental edits, which are the part of the process before it goes into copy editing. So where we're developing the story, the characters, the arcs, the conflict, and just making the story the best story that the author has in them. And that does not mean uh, my ideas, you know, it means like what their idea of the best story is. Uh, It's just all, all developmental edits are always just suggestions to help spark something in the author. And then we put that through copy editing, proofreading, something we call a cold read, which is just another step of quality assurance to make sure that we didn't miss anything. And, you know, we have, you know, these wonderful, um, you know, like we have sensitivity reads, uh, which we, it's really just wonderful to be able to put our authors through all of those quality checks. And at Amazon Publishing, I really get to be a part of every single step of the process. I'm, you know, I'm there for the covers, for the promo text, you know, for post-production. I get to work with marketing to really target the author's readership. And it's just a really, it's a great, it's a great role to be in, I would say, because it's more than just what people think of when they think of editors, which is like commas and, you know, uh, misplaced modifiers. I do a little bit of that, but not very much. Mostly I am the point of contact and the, um, the main advocate for the book within, you know, our publishing house. So you just wear like all the hats. <laughs> all the hats, every single hat. But I wouldn't be able to do it without my amazing team members. <laughs> Let me just say, like, it's not a, it's not a one woman show over here. Uh, we have a really fabulous art department. You know, we have a wonderful marketing team that just is always, you know, on the innovative. We have, you know, we have the best roster of like copy editors and proofreaders we have the best production team 
Um, we have, you know, everything. We have an amazing author relations manager who is, uh, she, they like to, to call that role sort of like an author concierge where they're just kind of in charge of making sure that all the author's questions are answered at every moment in time. Uh, and they're really involved, especially post-production when it's not really editorial specific, if something's going on with their detail page, if there's something, if there's something looks off, you know, or if there is, you know, a supply issue, anything at all, they're sort of like there to, to take care of the author, which is just wonderful. I'd never even heard of author relations managers before I came to Amazon Publishing. So it's, it's, it's really cool to have such an amazing experience team sort of helping all of us. That's amazing. I love that. Like I can swear to God, tell you that I never imagined so many people on a team <laughs> for a book. <laughs> and we have vendors too. We have great vendors that we work with, you know, so not everybody, uh, nobody sits in the office. Well, I'm not going to say nobody, not a lot of people sit in the office right now, but we, even when we did, not everybody that we work with, you know, was part of the like office day-to-day -day team we also work with like vendors that are freelancers, like promo writers and designers, uh, just so that we can be very inclusive and just really have a diverse group of, of, of people who can work on our books. You know, we have fabulous, like we have fabulous designers that come from all over the world. You know, we have promo writers with years of experience in the industry. Um, and, you know, we have fabulous copy editors and, and proofreaders and just a little bit of everything, but so many, so many hands and so many eyes go on the book. It's great. Cause if it was just me, I'd be like, I missed something. I missed something. Anecdotally, when I first started at Amazon publishing, we were still kind of in startup mode. So I was doing a lot of red lines for contracts and things like that. And I was scared to death. Of course there were lawyers overseeing everything. It wasn't, they didn't like, you know, nobody was just like letting me run wild with it. Uh, but it was a lot uh, more difficult for an editor to speak legalese, you know? So it's great that we have all of those team members and have had them filled out for a very long time. I love that. <laughs> I like never, never would have expected so many hands touch a book before <laughs> no it becomes a book. <laughs> so previously I've had an agent on the show and he said like the only way for like a traditionally published author to like get an editor is to go through an agent that to have an editor without an agent first is very, very, very rare on the editor side of things. Can you kind of talk about why that is? Well, I will absolutely say that we have some amazing agent partners. We work with a lots of different literary agents who bring us uh, just exactly what they know we're looking for. I'm like, I need, you know, the most tearjerker, you know, romance, pirate ship. I'm making that up, by the way. I've never said that. But, uh, you know, if I were to say that to any of my literary agent friends, they would go out and they would find it. But that being said, um, that is not my experience in terms of only working with agents. You know, we have this great uh, platform. It's uh, KDP, you know, the Kindle Direct Publishing, which is the self-published arm of Amazon. And I have found so many authors through that venue. Like I, I've been reading authors, you know, I've been reading KDP authors and I'll reach out to them or I'll have KDP authors reaching out to me or they'll be friends with some of my authors. Uh, I have a lot of authors who are hybrid, which means that they are, you know, publishing in KDP and Kindle Direct Publishing and also publishing with us. And some of them don't have agents, some of them do. Uh, because, you know, it's, it's, that's a completely author specific 
you know, desire with if they want it or need it. I will say that, of course, you know, authors with agents have a direct line, but only because agents know what the editors are specifically looking for because we touch base with them. If you are an author without an agent, I would say that the most important part is going to be for you to do your research. So find an editor who publishes the books that you are writing and then send it to them. Because if you are writing the next John Grisham novel and you send it to an editor at Harlequin, they're probably not going to acquire it. <laughs> the probability of them not acquiring is very high. Um, so I think that that is what really makes a difference. Of course, there are certain editors or houses that are sort of close for submissions because we would all just drown in submissions. But, um, you know, there's always ways to reach editors and, and imprints. And I think that one of those ways is absolutely an agent. And there's, there's ways to do research and send directly to the publishing house or editor. Interesting. Fascinating. I like, Absolutely. before I even talked to like this agent, like I very, have you ever seen the TV show Younger? I only saw like the first episode of it. I only saw the first episode of it and I was like, ah! <laughs> very much, you probably like, what is this? But there's like an entire, like one of the episodes has like a table filled with like manuscripts that are just like sent in. And like, that's very much what I pictured as like any publishing house looking like. And then the agent was like, mm, like we work with them. Like very rarely will they accept like just like a random manuscript. I'm like, what? I pictured the table. <laughs> so the table is not completely wrong. When I was at HarperCollins, um, we actually did have a team of like junior editors that would meet once a week. They'd buy us dinner uh, and we'd get overtime hours <laughs> and we would just uh, like we plow through the unsolicited submissions. Now, those unsolicited submissions were mainly like sent to the ether. They're like, dear editor, you know, dear editor at HarperCollins. You know what I mean? So they weren't targeting a specific person. Usually, even if it was an unsolicited manuscript that, you know, was um, like not from, you know, not something that the editor had requested, but it goes directly to the editor and the author has put enough time for research that person, they'll usually get, you know, a, a personal response. They'll be able to really, I mean, most of the time. Uh, it's really when you sort of are like the, I'm just gonna send it to dear editor, you know, I didn't do any research, didn't didn't check to see, you know, what kind of books these people publish, but then it just kind of goes into a pile. Um, that is not the case here because I don't remember the last time I had a physical submission. I don't think I've had any physical submissions at Amazon Publishing, I might be misremembering, uh, but the days of all of that wasted paper are thankfully, behind us. <laughs> I, I, I love, you know, the move into the digital era, whether or not, you know, I still love print books, of course, but uh, the, the move to make everything digital, I, I love saving the trees. I, I love that all of my submissions are digital. I don't miss, you know, the piles and piles of paper. I love that. I love that the table, like, kind of existed. <laughs> it, it, it does. It, it does. I mean, I don't know that it, does anymore, but I, it definitely is, is true in some sense. The metaphorical table these days. The metaphorical table. <laughs> Can you kind of talk about the process of like evaluating submissions and like deciding which books you purchase and pick up? Absolutely. Um, so here at Amazon Publishing, you know, we are, uh, we are a data company. So 
I will do a little bit of research on the authors and see, you know, if they have an audience, um, if they have great reviews, I will see, you know, uh, if I feel like they're going to be a good fit for us. And if it's some, if it's an author that we can really bring to the next level, and if we can do really right by that author, which is very important, you know, because reading a manuscript and falling in love with it is huge. It's everything, but it's not, uh, it's, it, it also needs a little bit more. Like we need, we need to know that we can do right by that author. And the way that we know that is really just by, um, by doing our research on the author and seeing, you know, if they're going to be a good fit for us here, if they're going to be a good partner, you know, if they already have an established audience that, you know, we can, we can expand and broaden, which is, is really, really important. Um, of course, we work with debuts, but it is it is a, a slower build for a debut because we're starting from scratch and we really have to bring, you know, all of our resources into it and, you know, as we do for all of our authors. Uh, but you, I think that when we are able to take an author with an existing platform, whatever that may be, we're really able to take them to another level, which when we're starting from scratch, it can be, you know, we have different you know, we have different programs that we are able, we've done, that we have in place to really hopefully uh, launch these debuts in a big way. You know, I'm thinking of specifically an, a program like Amazon First Reads, which is a program available to uh, to readers specifically if they have, you know, Prime and they're able to buy to buy one free book. And I do, I, I just did air quotes and I realized that the <laughs> listeners can't see me. Um, so they're able to download a free book, you know, with their Prime membership is a great asset. And it really, it enables us at Amazon Publishing to, to bring these authors to a wider readership. And, and that's a really great platform to have. That's so fascinating. I have a couple of friends on Bookstagram who are aspiring authors themselves. And so they created these platforms in order to kind of make themselves more like pick up a ball for their debut. So it's so interesting that like, that really is what you should do or like that really is a method yes, that works. Absolutely, absolutely. Anytime you can just bring yourself out there and prove that, you know, that readers want to read the types of books that you're offering, whether that is, you know, I mean, obviously contests exist for debut authors so that you have that like, you know, that selection, that prestige, if you're able to get blurbs from other authors, um, all of that, all of that counts. And if you're an already um, an already published author who just maybe hasn't found the level of success that they're hoping for, but you have, you know, great reviews or, you know, just good data or great relationships, all of that does, you know, come into play as well. Obviously, at the end of the day, uh, we're, that, that is uh, all, um, the most important thing is going to be the book. The book has to resonate and I have to love it. I read so many wonderful books every single day. I read so many great submissions. And sometimes the submissions, I'm like, man, I wish I could buy them all. But, you know, our list is, is limited. We only have so many slots. So I have to go with the books that I think are going to have the best chance of succeeding on our list and how we are going to bring the most value to these authors because that's really important. We want authors to be happy with their experience. That's so interesting. What would you say like the biggest priority is when you're like looking through these manuscripts? Like you say it has to resonate, but like, what does that mean? I think it means different things for different people. But for me, uh, I just have to sort of be like, if I put it down, I have to keep thinking about it. Uh, it has to bring a little bit of something different for me. I, I think it has 
to because I because I read so many books. Um, just having a good good storyline, um, or you know, a good relationship here, or just being a really good writer isn't always enough. Sometimes it's that that sparkle. It's almost um, that intangible. Like I can't even put it into words. It is uh, it is the something special. It's the it factor of books. It is it is um, the cinematic quality of it. Um, sometimes it's, it can be, it can just be the writing sometimes. Sometimes the story is, I don't want to say mundane, but I, I want to say maybe the story I've, I've read before, but the writing is just so all-encompassing that I can't stop reading it. Sometimes the author is more of a storyteller and they're just telling me a story that I'm just like, what is going to happen? What is going to happen? <laughs> I can't put it down. Uh, there is no one magic formula. I wish there was. I could just. I wish I could say if you do X and Y, you're going to get published. <laughs> but there's not. Um, but I will say this, um, and I, I hear this from a lot of published authors who are very successful, is that you're going to get rejected uh, by people because uh, the reading experience is subjective. And what I find to be the best book in the whole world doesn't always mean that every other person is going to, to feel the same way. It very much takes into account how, you know, like what everybody's personal experiences. I can say, because I've been working in this genre for a long time, that there are certain books or, you know, I can read something and be like, I feel like this is, you know, this reminds me of this other best-selling book or this reminds me of, of this. And that's usually a good indicator, as, you know, as long as it's original work, of course. Um, but it, it, it doesn't mean that I might not uh, love something that will then do well. It just means that I need to be able to champion every one of my books, like they're my child. <laughs> I have to love them as much as I love my children, as much as authors love their own work. So I have to connect with it on that level. So don't be afraid to submit it to more than one editor. Don't be afraid to submit it to more than one house. And if you get a rejection, um, just keep going. You know, just, you know, if there's feedback, take it into account. And if it resonates, you know, make it. Um, but just because one editor doesn't think that it's right for them doesn't mean that it's not worthy to be published. That's, I saw a TikTok, I think yesterday, that was like this author, like showed all of her rejection letters. And she's like, I have like a hundred of these. And like, I have now published like my 12th book. Like, just keep going. Just keep going. Just keep going. <laughs> writers um authors and writers who they just they have to write right like if you are if you're a writer you just have to write like it doesn't matter if, if nobody else is going to read it you're not writing it for anybody else but yourself at the time you know you're writing it because you need to get the story out and you know just just keep writing it don't write it to a to a trend don't write it because you know you think somebody else will like it write it because you want to read it and they don't that story isn't you know there and you need to read that story. And that I think is when the magic happens. When you write the story you wanna read. I love that. <laughs> you said that when a book or like a manuscript reminds you of another like published book, that that's like a good sign. Yes. In my head, that would be a bad sign. Let me, let me clarify. Uh, <laughs> we have this thing where we're like, if you had to pitch this in like a sentence, what would it be? And I, this is like off the top of my head, I'm always like, this is like Colleen Hoover meets Catherine Bybee with a little sprinkle of Emily Henry. And it's when the voice, you know, is, is familiar when, you know, the writing style is really strong, 
when some of the conflict is just uh, like, like really believable. And some of these authors that are in this genre and are bestselling authors do it really well. So when I say like reminds me of them, it means that I feel like they're on par, you know, with that level of authenticity. Interesting. Well, so that was like such an interesting cocktail that you just created. I know. (laughs) (laughs) I used to say, um, you know, sometimes um, I would say to agents, I was like, can you bring me Georgia Moist, but with a happy ending? Uh, So like that was a very specific, you know, request. But they knew that I meant like these like intricate relations with a lot of like grief involved, but like also emotional connection. So it was, it was a good way to get the tearjerker stories that ended happily. That's so funny. I love that. So like, that's just like, (laughs) (laughs) do you notice a difference when you're editing like a debut novel versus like an author's fourth or fifth novel? Like, is that process pretty much the same the entire time? Or is it like a little bit smoother in like subsequent books? How, what's it like? (laughs) I will say uh, no, actually, uh, the debuts that I buy, I buy them because they feel as strong as an author who's published plenty book. Um, I, I very, I don't remember any debuts off the top of my head. I thought this needs a lot of work. Uh, <laughs> I'm actually more likely to buy um, a book that needs a lot of work from an established author because I'm like, I know they can get there. But for a debut, I think the bar is a little bit higher, so the book has to be a little bit tighter. Because, you know, it, it, it is like, this is all you can judge them on. You can't judge them on any past work, you know. But if one of my very accomplished authors comes in and it's like, kind of like sideways, I'm like, we're, it's fine. Let's, we'll get this in edits. It's going to be okay. You know, we're going we're gonna to fix this. It's going to be great because I know what they can bring. So I would, I mean, I guess I would say in some cases, the debuts tend to be less problematic because they've worked on them for probably a little bit longer. When you're talking about a fourth or fifth novel, you're usually talking about something, usually, not always, but usually that's already been contracted and has a deadline. So they're like, I'm going to get this on paper and then we're going to fix it. Um, and we always do. We always do. We never publish anything that that we're like, oh, what happened here? We, we wouldn't do that to the author. <laughs> I promise. Giant plot hole printed. <laughs> no, yeah, no, we're not going to do that. Um, but I will say that that's usually my debut manuscripts are a little bit easier now now the sophomore one you know what I mean uh that one can be a little bit more problematic because I don't know how long a debut has been working on that manuscript and then we suddenly give them a deadline for a book two and then they're like oh I've been working on this for 10 years (laughs) I have to do this in eight months and obviously the deadlines come from them like I I never say like you've got to get this to me then because they, it has to be realistic so the the sophomore novel usually is a little bit more like ah can I do this again um and then after that it gets easier so the first one's the easiest the second one's the hardest and everything after that is usually that's so fascinating <laughs> I like never never would have put that all together <laughs> but like I understand the sophomore thing <laughs> It's almost like they are sometimes a little bit afraid, if, especially if they've never gotten feedback and they go and they read all their comments, which you should never do if you're a published author. Don't go into amazon.com to read all of your comments and definitely don't go in there and reply to any of the comments. Don't do it. Just don't do it. Uh, 
so just, you know, once you start reading all the comments and because everybody's opinion is always going to be different, right? What I love about the book might be what somebody really dislikes about the book um, and vice versa. So they'll go in there sometimes. This doesn't happen to everybody, of course, uh, but it happens to some authors when they're fairly new. They'll go in there, they'll read all the comments because they want to please everybody. And then they'll get stuck because they're like, well, I can't write a book that pleases everybody because that doesn't exist. Um, so then they'll feel like a little bit like, ah, so much pressure. <laughs> but we always work it out. It's always going to be fine. We always just pull them off the ledge, tell them not to read the comments and just focus on what they want to write. It's always okay. Reviews are for the readers. The not reviews are for the readers. And you know, sometimes the negative reviews can be good for people who want to read the book. Like sometimes, sometimes, sometimes it's like, oh, there's too much sex in the book here. And then somebody be like, perfect, that's what I want to read. So, you know, it's great. And, and not, it's not great when they give you once a review, I understand, but you know, it's, it, it can be beneficial in the long term. So don't put too much stock into it. Only focus on the good ones. If you need to read reviews, only read the fours and fives. Don't read anything else. I love that. I, yeah. Reviews are not for authors. Don't no. do it. Don't do it. You are an author. Don't do it. <laughs> Highly agree. <laughs> what happens when you and the author don't really agree on some edits? The author gets to pick. The author's name goes on the book and, and there it's their story. It is their vision. I am not the writer. I can only, you know, say, Hey, this didn't really feel authentic to me because X, Y, and Z. Do you think that there's a solution to that? But no, I, I will never tell an author they have to change. That, that seems, uh, then I would just write a book, right? Like, that doesn't make sense. Um, we, but of course, if the book is problematic, if it doesn't have enough conflict, if, if the hero and heroine don't feel authentic, if, you know, um, the story needs some work, you know, we'll, we'll talk to the author and we'll say, hey, some of this isn't, you know, coming across the way you want to. How can we, how can we make it so that it's going to really resonate with readers? The best solution is just to let the author come up with the answer. Um, I can give them some suggestions, but I, I never want them to uh, make a change that they don't want to make. That sounds terrible. Interesting. I would have thought you would have been the final say. Nope, like, nope. It's the author. It's the author because my name's not going on that book. So it's it's really important uh, for me uh, that the uh, that the author's work is accurately represented. And you know we want to make sure that you know they feel really good about the story. Now, like I said, we're not going to publish a story that isn't uh, <laughs> isn't up to their own standards. You know, we bought the books and we we. We contracted the author because we believe in them. So there's a level, there's a certain level that, you know, we, we need them to get to. And really they're their own, you know, measure of success. But I will say that, you know, if it's just like a plot here, or a plot there uh, where I'm like, well, I don't really think that that's how that would work. And they're like, I, I feel very strongly that that's exactly what this character would do. I'll be like, perfect. If you, if you are happy with it, even despite me being like, well, I don't really love that, uh, then we're going to go with the author. For sure. You guys, this is the whole reason why this podcast exists. It's because I know nothing. <laughs> <laughs> that is not true. You know books. And that is the most important thing. You know, it really is. Readers are, are the ones who really, like you, you and all of everybody else who's listening out there who is reading our books. Like it's, it's because of, of our readers that we get to do what we do. You know, um, it really is like you guys are informing us on like what the trends are or what they aren't or what you really want to read. 
um, if we're if we keep publishing books that don't get picked up, then obviously we're doing something wrong. We have to cater to what the audience wants. On that note, what are some of the most interesting trends you've seen in your time of being an editor? So I think the trends come and go. For sure, they're cyclical, right? Um, there is, you know, like the wealthy man. Uh, there's, you know, the single dad. There's the office romance. And some of those trends, there's paranormal and contemporary and cowboys. And, and I mean, there's lots and lots and lots of different uh, genres, subgenres. And there, you know, sometimes it's all like all historicals, all of this, all of that. But it'll come around. Usually what happens is like something becomes really popular and, you know, like it's all in pop culture. So it's what everybody wants to read. You know, I remember there was a year where like it was billionaires all the time, <laughs> like everything was billionaire. And then it sort of softens up and other other tropes and other subgenres come in. And then, you know, it comes back in a different way. You know, we still have billionaires all over the place. They're just not, you know, as if we don't like market them, you know, with billionaire in the title all the time anymore, like we used to because that was that's what everybody wanted. But I, I will say that the, one of the best things, and this isn't a trope, but one of the best things that I've seen in like recent history is that authors are starting to be a lot more thoughtful about the kind of content that they're putting out there, like consent and diversity and all of those wonderful things that are really important and prevalent in today's society. You know, like it's not you know, I, I see it, you know, in romance uh, where, you know, you have the office romance, but the idea of consent is very well articulated. You know, you see it uh, in romances when they're talking about safe sex and the importance of that. And sometimes it's just like a line about the condom, you know, like, you know, and oh, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, it doesn't have to be an issues novel. It can just sort of organically add in all of the things that are important to to everybody in today's society and are inclusive and you know are are important for for females for men for society and I, I love that I love that authors as a whole I think have really become more conscious of it because readers are demanding it and I think you know and I think some of them are like yay <laughs> but I think that the fact that readers are definitely calling it out and saying hey I appreciate it when an author goes out of their way to make sure that this feels inclusive, that this feels, um, that this fields the question of consent in a very natural way, um, and that we're avoiding the pitfalls of like, you know, power dynamics and, you know, whatever we can do um, in those places. Now, we have to balance that with a little bit of the fantastical, because obviously, uh, in romance specifically, there are, there are different, um, desires and sometimes those desires are something that a reader would want to read about but wouldn't want to experience but we just try to be very careful uh not to toe the line and not make anybody uncomfortable and just be very conscious of that and that's where things like sensitivity reads um are really important you know it's a great the great service that we offer our authors because sometimes you don't know what you don't know and we don't know if there is like an unconscious bias in there and we, we want to make sure that we are addressing that. I love that. And I had like an entire um, episode about young adult and how like new age young adult really touches on all those topics that 
like it touches on LGBT like youth. It talks about like safe sex, talks about consensual sex, like all of that. And I feel like that's like very much reflected in the adult side of things now. And it's wonderful to see. Yes. Yes, it is. It like just like shows that as a society, we aren't all the way fucked up yet. I <laughs> <laughs> agree. We, we learn from our mistakes, I hope. So, you know, We're, we always try to do better. I think that's where it is. And nobody's ever going to be perfect. And there's never going to, well, I mean, I hope that, you know, we strive for perfection, but we, we are tolerant of, you know, the fact that everything is still changing and we are striving to be the best that we can be. We're striving to be an inclusive, you know, workplace. We're striving to really um, bring underrepresented authors to, you know, to the audience. We are, we're really trying to do the best that we can in every way that we can. And, uh, you know, that's all you can do is just continue to try every day. I love that so much. That was like so well said. How do you ensure like a really great working relationship with an author? Like, how do you just like make sure that that's like super copacetic? It's the most important part of my job. <laughs> Let's start off with that. Uh, my relationship with the author is what I wake up to and what I go to sleep with. Like it is, it's, it's essential. It is much more than just my job. Uh, and that sounded a little hokey, but I mean it because, you know, these authors are counting on me, right. To be their champion within my publishing house. They're counting on me to love their books. They're counting on me to be transparent with them, um, in, you know, in what we can do for them, what we can't do for them. Um, I want, you know, my authors to be able to call me, to text me, to message me, to be able to get in touch with me whenever they need to, you know? And I know when I was an editorial assistant, I remember hearing like, oh, you know, um, editorial director gave this, you know, author her phone number. So they talk on the phone at night. That just seems like very uh, intrusive, you know? And as I grew my own list of authors, I realized, you know, like I, I'm, I want to be more than just their editor. I want to be, you know, I want to be their friend. I want to be their therapist. I want to be their business partner. Uh, and, you know, for the most part, every single one of my authors is very respectful of my time. They're not just like calling me like out of the blue, just be like, oh, hey, they're they're calling me in an emergency. But like, I want them to be able to reach me at any time. And and I want to have those touch bases. Like we have calls, we email, you know, um, sometimes we'll just set up a recurring meeting just to chat and see like if everything is going well. When we're going through the developmental edits, um, which is the process that comes before copy editing, we're... Um, editing their books we have like a call before the edits go to them we have a call after the edits go to them we have a call when they're like in the middle of rewriting it because that's probably the toughest part um, when you're sort of doing the rewrites and you're kind of like okay all right well I want them to have a really open line of communication with me so that if they're feeling stuck that I can help them and we can throw spaghetti at the wall and see if anything sticks and if they're making a change and it doesn't feel organic we can just disregard that change like we don't you know, I don't want them to like drive themselves crazy trying to fit a round peg in square hole. We can just, I want them to, I want to be accessible to my authors is what it really boils down to. That's amazing. I'd be that person that like ended up like texting at like 2 a.m. because that's when I'd be working. But that's like- and it's when I woke up. <laughs> I usually have my ringer uh, on silent when I'm sleeping just for that occasion. Uh, so that, it, you know, if it happens, it's not going to wake me up. It's going to be fine. What happens when you- love a book, you think it's a home run, 
but then it doesn't do as well as you thought it would when you picked it up. What happens then? Does like anything? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, well, no, a little bit of that. I mean, there's a lot of sadness. Um, the good thing, the great thing about working at Amazon Publishing, and this is something that is not true for my previous publisher, although maybe it's truer now, but because um, you know we we are a part of Amazon.com, like we have the ability to really work with our marketing team and be like, what else can we do? Like, okay, this didn't take off like we thought. Where can we include it? Like, what promotions can we nominate them for? Like, what can we what can we do for the life cycle of this book so that we are, you know, maybe it won't be the next Nora Roberts, but that we are at least doing our due diligence and getting it into the hands of as many readers as possible. So just because it doesn't have the strongest launch doesn't mean that we can't get there. We tell all of our authors that it's a marathon, not a sprint. So it really is about the life cycle of a title. You know, we really, we're going to be continuing to put um, backlist titles into a pricing promotions. We're going to continue to include them wherever it makes sense. Like if there's a call for a certain kind of romance or a certain kind of book or a women's fiction or whatever, we're able to sort of nominate them for things into perpetuity. Um, so even if they, you know, if they, even if they don't like runaway bestseller that first week, we have, you know, we have a lifetime here to continue to do right by the author. Of course, we want all of our books to be successful right off the bat, but that's unfortunately not the case for a lot of books. You know, we we could do the exact same marketing plan, the exact same thing with the exact same everything for five books. And then one of those might be a bestseller. Two of those might do really well. And then two of those might do not so well, you know? Um, so it really, it's like, what is the market hungry for at the time? You know, is the cover resonating? Is the blurb resonating? You know, are people reading it and just like, yes, click buy? Um, unfortunately, you know, as much as we'd like, we can't force people to buy books. You know, <laughs> we, we can just put them in front of them and say, here, this is a book we think you should buy, uh, but we can't click that buy button for them. So it, it does happen. But I, I like to believe that we are doing our due diligence for all of our titles, even the titles that don't perform right at the gate as we hoped. Um, we will continue to do right by them and hopefully make the authors happy in whatever way we can. How long does it typically take from the time that you pick up a book to the time it hits shelves? Oh, that's a great question. Um, and it, 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 it varies. <laughs> um, I remember uh, when I first started, we were like trying to be as quick as possible. And then um, we started to do uh, a lot more advanced reading copies. Um, now, and I don't know if readers know what advanced reading copies, but it is exactly what it sounds like. It's like physical copies of the book that are done uh, prior to the book being released, and those are sent out to reviewers and to different media outlets and just, you know, different sources and the author themselves. And so that takes a little bit of chunk of time. And, you know, we also want to make sure that we have enough time to send the books in for trade reviews. And there's a review period um, that needs to be honored, you know, for, for those trade reviews. And then to complicate things even further, um, you know, uh, we've had some print shortages worldwide in the past few years that have made it so that we need to have uh, a little bit of a longer cycle so that we are um, able to get the print books out in a, in a timely way. So I would say there's, there's not a one specific answer, but I would say anywhere between six and a half to seven to like nine and a half to 10 months, somewhere in that, somewhere in that uh, vicinity. Um, that's, 
usually mostly after the developmental edit is done. So let's add like another six weeks to that more or less. So let's say eight months from the time, like I contract it to the time, eight months to a year is, is, is a pretty average one. Sometimes, of course, um, we'll move things out accordingly, depending on what the author's pipeline and our own pipeline is. So it can be a little bit more time or, you know, if we're able to like really like hunker down and make things work, we can able, we're able to shorten that. Um, but I would say average is somewhere in that seven, seven months to a year. That's much shorter than I thought it would be. I was expecting like 12 to 18 months. <laughs> I mean, it can be, it definitely can be. I mean, if the book isn't written yet, that, that adds up a lot of time. I was just saying from a finished book in my hand, you know, and as long as we have space for it and everything else, we do try to be uh, fast to publish. I think authors really want to see those really start working uh, and we want to get, you know, the books out to readers. I think, uh, I think, Romance readers in particular want a shorter cadence between books if it's a series. So we want to honor that. And um, a few years between books is too long. So it's a little different if it's a standard. (laughs) But whatever we can with series, we try to shorten the cadence. As a romance reader, I agree. (laughs) (laughs) I figured, you know, I think you don't want to wait as long as possible for the next Not, I think you, you want it yesterday. I don't want to wait for the brothers story that's inevitably going to be written. Totally understand. (laughs) So we've talked about this before, but most authors tend to have their editor listed as the person to reach out to for any type of PR. Is there like a best practice for reaching out to for this type of stuff? How does it work? Especially since it tends to be an editor that's listed. I think the fact um, that the editor is listed is really because we're the main point of contact for everything. Uh, And that's completely fine because you can reach out to me and I will reach out to my PR manager, who is usually the one that organizes like author events or interviews. And then of course, it's the author themselves who really weighs in on whether they want to do it or not. But absolutely, I think the editor is usually put down as the main point of contact for, for most of these things, just because, you know, we're involved in everything. And I, I promise I'll always get it into the right hands. Uh, so it makes sense to me. But in terms of best practices, um, you like it can be the editor, it can be the PR manager. Like, I don't think anybody has to go out of their way to find a contact if they don't have it. I think, you know, the editor is always the right place to start. Fascinating. It wasn't until I started reaching out to authors and like seeing that, that I was like, how would the editor be listed? <laughs> we're, we're just the easiest point of contact for the author to usually remember because we're there for every step of the way. And they know that we know that if it's not us, we know who to get it. And that's totally fine. Fair enough. Was there ever a project you passed on, but ended up being a huge success for like another editor or another publisher? Not that I can recall off the top of my head, although I keep waiting for something to like, so something like that to happen which is why I'm always really careful when I'm like, oh, you know, like this is, is this rejection. And honestly, that that could happen because like I said, you know, reads are subjective. So I might not, you know, love something, but it doesn't mean that it won't go off and be a bestseller somewhere else. And I always wish that for the author. I'm like, I hope that if I reject you, I hope you get a million dollars somewhere else and then it becomes a huge bestseller. And then I get to come and beg you in the future. Like that's a great scenario. Um, so I don't remember anything specifically like that ever happening, but I will say that back when I was an editorial assistant, uh, I remember getting an ARC, which is the advanced reading copy of, uh, of Twilight uh, on my desk. 
and reading it before it was published and bringing it to my editorial team and being like, this is going to be huge. Um, and everything about it, um, the cover to the back promo copy, um, which was in first person, it was just an excerpt from the book, was just so different from everything that had been done in YA to that point. It really just revolutionized what we thought of as YA romance. And I used to work in, in Borders, and I used to work in Borders when the YA section was still in the children's section. It was still part of it. And it wasn't until after like Twilight really came out that they separated it because YA became such a phenomenon. So I, I remember, and that was one of my most, I mean, I didn't have anything to do with it. I didn't buy the book. I didn't see the submission, but I remember like always patting myself in the back, like you got that one. Yeah, you knew. <laughs> you knew. <laughs> you knew. It was just so, uh, so ahead of its time. This is how we know that you have great instincts. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I just need my own twilight okay I just you know want to find my own twilight although I do have a lot of authors who I will say are my own personal twilight no glittery vampires uh but absolutely just those like one of a kind really special voices and you know revolutionizing the genre so I, I've been really lucky with all of the authors that I've worked with I love that and speaking of your authors I have Priscilla coming on in a couple weeks, which Yay! I'm very excited about. Priscilla Oliveras, I love her so much. She's wonderful. Her book, West Side Love Story, is what we're going to be talking about, and I'm obsessed with it. It's so good. It's so good. I just love this Latina retelling of, you know, West Side Story, which is, of course, based off of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, which is the classic love story of all time. Uh, and I think that the, um, clearly what all, most of, if not all, most of our romance dreams start with. So uh, it really, I mean, I, I love that this one, you know, I'm just going to spoil it. I'm going to say there's a happy ending and, you know, it's not, you know, like as, as sad it as the original. new romance. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, but I love that we, that I've been seeing a lot of, you asked me about trends earlier and I didn't really mention this, but I have seen a lot of retellings from classics that bring an angle of diversity to them. Uh, and that's been a really um, fun, I won't say trope, but a, a trend, you know, that has been really uplifting to see, to see how um, different authors and different communities really embrace the classics and make them their own and how they bring these diverse cultural, ethnic, all of the all of those uh, nuances into these like classic stories. So it's, it's really, it's really wonderful. And I feel like romance specifically has really embraced diverse authors, yes. diverse stories. They're kind of spearheading the let's just welcome everybody type thing. And yes. I love it. It's, it's, it's wonderful. It's really great to see. And I know that uh, that all of my authors are really thinking about how they can incorporate, you know, um, diversity and inclusion into their manuscripts, you know, how they can be thoughtful about it, um, how they can, you know, make sure that, you know, things feel authentic, you know, because, you know, we live in a diverse society, you know, and even if their own experience might not necessarily be, you know, one with a diverse background, um, the fact that a lot of them are now really being conscious of making sure that, you know, if, even if their main characters aren't, you know, that they have, uh, what feels like a realistic portrayal, you know, of real world, you know, statistics. So that's really, that's been really great to see just overall. 
I love it. So we've talked about Priscilla. What other books are your authors releasing in the next like upcoming months that we can all look forward to? Oh, that is a fantastic question. And I live for that question. If I was to sit here, I would tell you my entire list uh, because it's so good. But I am going to try to be thoughtful and limit it to maybe four. Um, I'm going to say, obviously, Priscilla's West Side Love Story. I think everybody needs to read it. Um, I have that comes out in in May. And then I also have uh, When It Falls Apart by Catherine Bybee, who is just, uh, if you like romance, then you're probably familiar with Catherine Bybee. She comes out in late May, When It Falls Apart. Sorry, not, not May. She comes out in June. I keep getting June and May confused. The West Side Love Story and Catherine Bybee both come out in June. Apologies. And then I have The One Who Loves You by Pippa Grant. And Pippa Grant is an author who I did actually find um, through KDP and through Kindle Direct Publishing. She was an author that I was reading and I was really excited about. And, you know, I reached out to her and she was like, this is wonderful. And her her story is just great. And it includes um, a lot of diversity and a lot, it's it's very inclusive. So I really, I really love that and appreciate that. And what I also really like about that one in particular is that it's a rom-com, but it's also kind of a tearjerker. So it's got a little bit of everything. And the Catherine Bybee one that I was telling you about when it falls apart, which comes out in late June, is just really, really special because that one is one that that's really has a lot of her own story in it. It's, you know, it's this really fantastic romance, but it has all these familial relationships where, um, you know, she's talking about her or the heroine's relationship with her own father. And it, it mirrors a lot of, you know, what Catherine herself went through with her father. Uh, so there's so much authenticity in that. And then, you know, finally, just to wrap it up, because I promise I wasn't going to, to talk your ear <laughs> off. Uh, Annette Chavez Macias, uh, she has a big chicas don't cry. And it is just, it's just such a beautiful story. It's the book of her heart. And I think everybody needs to read it. And she publishes romance under the pen name Sabrina Soul. But this is going to be her first her first story written under her real name because it really is kind of crossing over into that women's fiction. And I, I suggest you go look at Big Chica's Don't Cry. The cover's gorgeous. All of I, these covers are beautiful. So I'm excited for this. That's awesome. I loved all of these titles. Like I can't wait to play this back for editing and be like write down all of them. <laughs> oh, I'll send you our whole list. I'm really excited, you know, about Please the do. whole list. Everybody is just really, really good. Like I I'm really honored to be able to work in a place where I really believe in every single one of the books we publish. I love that. I can't wait to harass Ashley and Lucy for ARCs for all of these. (laughs) All of them. All of them. Yes. This has been amazing. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I've loved chatting with you. I'm going to come on again. Please. Anytime. Yes. I just have one last question. It's my closing question to all of my guests. What books are you currently binging? Oh, that is a good one. I, you know, it's funny because I can't read for pleasure as much as I would like to, because, you know, obviously I have a submission pile, you know, (laughs) like from here to Timbuktu, but I will say I have been reading, I've been binging Sophie Lark's Maker Series. Yes. (laughs) And I am obsessed. 
Sophie, if you're out there and listening, come call me. I love your work. It's so good. It's so good. Um, yeah, no, I, I love all of her books. So I've been binging the whole series. I, my first Sophie Lark novels were The Sinner's Duet. <sighs> and I'm hooked. But like, I like haven't been able to get to like the Kingmakers yet. And been like, sitting to. on my Kindle just like staring at me. Oh, readers, please go go read some Sophie Lark. She's <laughs> she's amazing. She has that she has that it quality that uh, Jessica and I were talking about. My good friend and guest from the pod, Emily Whitting, she just did the discreet covers for the Kingmaker series. And obsessed with them, so like check out all of it. Definitely, Ooh, it's exciting. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. This has been amazing. Oh, yay. I had such a good time. Thank you for inviting me. I can't wait to now harass her emails. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime. I'm always here. Like I said, you can text me. I have it on silent when I'm sleeping. It's 2 a.m. I'm okay with it. Perfect. This has been Maria Gomez from Amazon Publishing's imprint, Montlake. I'll add all of the books we mentioned today on the bookshop.org storefront. So be sure to check out all of these very fun titles coming from Montlake. Thank you so much for listening. This has been a bookshelf binge. Be sure to rate the podcast, please, on your preferred listening platforms. This really helps boost the show to new listeners, so I would be incredibly grateful. Next week on May 25th, I will be hosting a giveaway on Instagram to commemorate the one-year anniversary of the creation of a bookshelf binge. So be sure to be following me there and on TikTok at bookshelf binge to see all of the details for that. As always, you can get these episodes early and ad-free by joining the Patreon. Also, there's new merch in the Etsy shop, so if you're interested in some fun tank tops and t-shirts for summer, you can see everything I've designed there. Thank you again for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.